My name is Alec Cowan, and you're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. Welcome to Spotlight on Science. This is our first episode. My name is Max Trasher. I'm a second-year PhD student in the psychology department here at UO. Alongside me is my co-host, Chris Chauvin, who's also a second-year PhD student in the Institute of Neuroscience. Hello, welcome to our pilot show. So the idea behind Spotlight on Science is to spark conversations across disciplines between researchers at the UO. And if you tune in, you're going to hear discussions about current topics in science news, research, and around campus, or anything else that might be of interest to researchers here at the UO. For our very first show, we want to focus on starting a discussion about science communication itself. So in order to discuss and educate on this topic, we've invited Teresa Chang and Saul Prop into our studio. Welcome. Yeah, thank you for being here. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. <laughs> so Chris and I are really excited to have both of you here for a pilot episode to talk about science communication. For one, because science communication is the goal of our podcast. Also because it seems to be something that all scientists, especially me, struggle with. So, yeah, as you can see right now. So I think the main thrust of our conversation today will be looking at both why science communication is important and what, what we as researchers can do to be better at this. Yeah. I also want to get both of your opinions on some recent findings in the science of science communication, especially since you two come from totally different disciplines, one of you in psychology, one of you in physics. It's just really great to have that, like, breadth of knowledge here. So, Awesome. So let's start off now with some more formal introductions for both of you. So first, I'm going to introduce Teresa Chang. Teresa received a BS in biological sciences and a BA in philosophy from California State University. She then went on to receive an EDM in mind, brain, and education from Harvard University Graduate School of Education. She then went on to several positions in both the worlds of research and education, including several research assistant positions, as well as teaching at multiple levels, including with Teach for America. Of interest to us specifically, she has been involved in multiple endeavors that attempted to bridge the gap between these two worlds, including her work at Carry the One Radio, writing for Learning in the Brain blog, and interning at The People's Science. Currently, she's a PhD student here at UO studying developmental psychology with Jen Pfeiffer. Uh, awesome. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, thanks. Good to have you here, Teresa. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's weird to have somebody read my statement. <laughs> 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 it's very odd. I guess you, you got to get used to that as you uh, yeah. move up. In the, the more oh, famous yeah. you get, the yeah. more often it's going to happen. It's inevitable. Yeah. Basically, <laughs> I made it today. I don't think it ever gets less awkward either. <laughs> well, speaking of which... Uh, over here we have Saul Prop, who is a third-year physics PhD student here at the University of Oregon. Uh, they're studying theoretical electron optics and quantum information theory. Saul grew up in San Diego, California, and went to High Tech High, an experimental charter school focusing on project-based learning. After that, they attended the College of Worcester, Ohio, where they double majored in physics and philosophy and minored in mathematics. Their research at the University of Oregon has focused on a number of areas, including spin-orbit coupling in electron vortices, the characterization of topological defects in magnetic materials, and most recently, the theoretical limits of how well you can detect a single photon of light. Additionally, Saul's passionate about physics education and teaching pedagogy, and is teaching this quarter's science literacy program's quantum mechanics for everyone course. That sounds really cool. Yeah. It, yeah. It's been really fun so that far. Thank you so awesome. much for having me. Yeah, good to have you. So... 
We noticed right off the bat that both of you have backgrounds in philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> You're just discovering this now. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm curious what you guys think. Do you think there's, I mean, you know, philosophy is traditionally a humanity. And then where's, you know, Saul's got physical science going on. Teresa's got biological science. Do you think that there's any, I don't know, connection between the fact that you both also double majored in, in philosophy and then became so interested in science communication? I would say probably. I mean, from the practical standpoint, philosophy is all about explaining ideas. Mm -hmm. That's what we do in science communication. And maybe more particular to philosophy of science, philosophy of science is how you tell people why they should believe science. True. Um, So science communication, the art of getting people to believe and understand science really is tied in there. Right. Yeah. I think there's this huge emphasis on... um on just communication skills that you sort of develop and really a really strong focus on um, argumentation and like building up arguments in this very clear and like very explicit way. Yeah, I think that's been really helpful in like both research and in, in on the psychom side. That's awesome. So it kind of translated into explaining your scientific research as well. And did either of you have formal training in science communication as an undergraduate as part of your programs? Or like, what what was your first time that you were like, oh, like, science communication is its own discrete thing? (laughs) (laughs) Probably at SciTalk Northwest when I came to the University of Oregon. Really? Yeah. What is SciTalk Northwest? It's actually where we met. Right? Wait, is it? I think that's what we were preparing for. When we were preparing for it. We were preparing for it. Yes. 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 Um, (laughs) Talk Northwest is this annual conference up in Portland on science communication. Um, It's a real... There's a lot of science conferences are really dull to go to because scientists don't know how to communicate. Mm -hmm. But actually, science communication conferences are very exciting to go to because everyone is at least interested in learning how to communicate. Right. It was very fun, very interactive, tons of, I think, like, opportunities for participation. Mm -hmm. And also just, like, they had so many um, panelists and people from so many different facets of science communication. Um, There were several, like, panels on, like, policy with I don't know who. Some big shot politicians. Very important people (laughs) attended this conference. So is this a yearly conference? Is that what it is? I think it was its inaugural. Yeah. Yeah. Where did you hear about it originally? Ellie, right? Ellie. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you're correct because you're doing the science literacy program Mm -hmm. with Ellie Vandergrift, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And have you done that as well? Um, I have. I don't know. I just somehow hang with Ellie. I don't know how <laughs> I started hanging with Ellie. Ellie's a pretty cool um, person to hang with. She, I think uh, I did the Mobile uh, Teaching Summer Institute, and I think um, she was involved in, in facilitating and getting that running. So um, yeah. oh, what is – all right, first off, you want to tell us what the Science Literacy Program is in case our listeners don't know here at the Yeah, so right. Science Literacy Program, it's got a lot of facets to it, but really it's, it's, it's in the name. Uh, it's about promoting science literacy in non-scientists. It's, okay. Uh, they offer a bunch of courses for non-science majors uh, taught by a mix of professors, uh, graduate students who get a separate science literacy program fellowship, and undergrads. And it gives the undergrads and the grad students valuable teaching experience and course design experience. Um, and it just kind of helps everyone. And the professors also get some stuff out of it, too, awesome. of getting a more experimental class teaching environment. Right, right. And so that connects to the mobile teaching... What is that exactly? The I'm, mobile what now? I'm script the acronym probably, but um, <laughs> Mobile Summer Institute for Scientific Teaching, something okay. like that. Yeah, so it's a one-week 
long uh, workshop um, that is held in the summers, and um, there is instruction on pedagogy, and there's also an opportunity to uh, teach a little a demo lesson um, to a class of basically your your peers, and um, and it's it's sweet. It's a really good experience. That's really cool, and I'm glad yeah. you told us about that because I don't think I mean I know in the Institute of Neuroscience I haven't heard anyone talk about that. So um, we had they had you guys had several professors attend. Really? Um, yeah, so I ended up co-teaching a lesson with um, Elliot Berkman in our department, oh. and also with Matt Smear and Oh Matt, all right. Yeah. Yeah, we need to be publicizing this. Oh, I love you, Sar. What What should grad students do that want to get involved in this program? Um, I think if you are, I subs- they have a really great weekly. The science literacy program has a really great weekly like blast that I think is very mm-hmm. informative. Um, so it's got a, usually a highlight on their journal club. Um, okay. For for um, that's usually more teaching oriented. Um, and then they also have tons of events on the side. Um, so I think that's actually how I found out about science, the, the Science Talk Northwest conference. Was um, through the journal club? I found out through, um, about this teaching. No, so it's just their weekly, like, email blast. They okay. a lot of good info on there. Okay. But, but yeah. everyone listening should totally go yeah. to the journal club. Oh, my God, is it fantastic. Really? I, I, I've never been. Wait. It's yeah. really great. I'm okay. really annoyed this year. It's during my general relativity class, and I can't go. It's, it's kind of BS. <laughs> but... Um, fantastic weekly meeting. It's really like hands-on active learning style. It's yep. not like, it's a journal club, but it's not like any other journal club around. Okay. It's, Ooh, that's very intriguing. Yeah. <laughs> and it's really, okay. it's really what got me involved in the science literacy program. Some, I like talked about being like, huh, I really like teaching. And someone was like, you should go to that journal club about teaching. Wait, so what have you done when you say it's like really hands-on? Like, what do you, what have you guys been up to? Like, there's a lot of like, uh... Like, you break off into pairs and discuss things and then share them with the larger group. There's other hands-on activities, like, well, you're, like, right on paper, and then they all get mixed up. Or sometimes, like, there's papers, but, like, different parts of, like, a butterfly or something. There's some <laughs> okay. very... Is there, is there a, a specific example yeah. that you remember? Uh, there's so many. Uh, I, I guess what I would just say is this is... I'm just brain farting a little bit on what the activities are. Was there an actual butterfly... No, there was, like, a thing I think where... What, what I'll just say is, like, the best part is not really the activities. It's just very well-structured. Yeah. And, like, they've got a bunch of different, like, probing questions. They, it's seminar-style journal club. Um, so you're not just discussing the reading. You're having a conversation that comes out of the reading. Okay. And comes out of this, like, somewhat structured seminar-style discussion coupled with small group discussions, coupled with kind of random activities... Um, okay, yes, there was one journal club where we had to make 10-minute videos describing a science concept. And we were just told in advance to bring our laptops and hopefully have some recording software and maybe check out a tablet and then show up and make one. And I think mine's somewhere. You teaching. did this during like an hour-long journal club or yeah, something? That's yeah. awesome. That's, that sounds like an icebreaker at a sleepaway camp. <laughs> <laughs> relive your camp experiences come to this journal club yeah it's it's really okay, fun journal awesome. club. it's what got me hooked really in the science literacy program that's interesting so all right i'm curious uh, for the both of you and this might not be an easy question to answer but what are you most interested in communicating during your career like what is the most interesting aspect of science communication that you want to convey and who do you want to convey that to what do you kind of consider your your the ultimate audience you would like to reach to be um, so I am a developmentalist, so a lot of my work has to do with, with kids, and specifically I study adolescents. And so I think 
a lot about like the sort of like the messaging around science and also the messaging around the sort of level of certainty that we have around uh, scientific findings and what the implications are for at the level of both like the individual so what might parents and kids do in response to this information or how might they think about development and themselves differently I also I mean I used to be a, a science teacher and so I think about how educators and how school systems might think about this. So I said both three levels, I guess. So then the, the third is sort of poli- like on the policy level. Right. Um, and there's just been a ton of sort of like buzz in my field around things like, you know, what do we know about adolescent brain development? How mm-hmm. should that affect, for example, policies surrounding um, sentencing in the juvenile justice system? Sure. Um, how should we think about, oh gosh, uh, so many other issues, like you know, like the legal age to to vote, drink, right. to do all sorts of different kinds of things, and so right. just kind of I don't know, thinking about how what my work is and how it's communicated, and relation to these much bigger issues and claims that people are interested in. Oh, social media and technology use—that's another huge one. Right, yeah. right. So that's super interesting. So kind of like you know, young people, sort of the educational system. How does your science communication relate to that and then also you know as these people become voters and whatnot what is your communicating your research so that people can actually understand where adolescent development is as that informs public policy yeah that's really cool yeah so you, you were mentioning your experience as an educator at the high school middle school level how does how does the way you talk about science change when you're sort of in that mode when you're in that uh when i don't know comes up <laughs> I don't know. It's very different. I mean, I think I see this uh, the science communication and my science education world is like overlapping, but not necessarily perfectly. Earlier, you asked about like sort of like training opportunities that we've had, and I would say that one of the most um, kick-ass experiences that I've had was at um, the Teacher Institute at the Exploratorium Science Museum Ooh. in San Francisco. Mm, cool. That is such a rad group of like science scientists and museum educators. Um, and they do such a great job of living in the world of like informal science learning. Uh-huh. So with, like teaching us as teachers to really um, build demos, like actually build them ourselves and um, teaching physics at the time. Aww. And um, awesome. and how to sort of create this very like back and forth conversation about what's going on, what, what a student or a, somebody anybody is just sort of like experiencing and how to turn that into 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 knowledge into like a, a deeper understanding of the world yeah yeah and is that something that um anyone can kind of sign up for or like a grad science teacher be science. Oh, okay <laughs> yeah. so it's for teachers okay it's for teachers yeah awesome. it was a really really sweet experience but i think just that general that general mind i think the mindset that they inculcated is sort of like it's ha- it's just definitely had a sense of um playfulness that I think is really uh, just a fun space to be in, both in teaching and in other science communication endeavors. And critical for science, really, like that playfulness to, you know, maintain that open-endedness about things. And how would you solve? Do you have like an ideal audience that you feel like, if I could reach these people about this topic, (sighs) that's what... (laughs) So it's tough. I've, I've done a lot of science outreach geared towards younger kids, mm-hmm. uh, middle school uh, and earlier. And 
I feel like I've gotten a pretty good handle on getting them excited about like cool new things we can do um, and cool new applications of technology. I've, I've, I, I haven't like mastered that, uh-huh. but I feel like pretty confident about, about that. Like in terms of like long-term science communication goals, I want to get better at being inspiring about things we don't know. Okay. Um, I think it's, 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 it might be, at least it's harder for me to get, um, well, to describe something you don't understand in a way that makes it compelling. Describing you some, something you do understand and has a really cool application to make it compelling, that, that's, th- that's doable. I think that's really interesting because I think one of the things, like, from the research side that's most compelling is the uncertainty. Right. And it is the, like, we don't know about this yet and what could we possibly know about this? Like, what are the first steps or, you know, intermediate steps to getting there? But it's, it's I feel like the communication of, of uncertainty is one of the hardest, or the, the, the communication of, of the unknown, not just in this, like, very abstract, like, the, the universe <laughs> the is so huge, the mystery, <laughs> but, like, but, like, really, like, moving forward is not just sitting back and being like, wow, that's cool, we don't know about that. It's like, how do we start to think about that? Yeah, yeah no, 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 yeah. M- making a question seem really like how it is to researchers when Mm -hmm. you've got a question you don't know the answer to and that question just traps you (laughs) that is an emotional experience that it's really hard to communicate to non-scientists yeah um and all science communication is hard i'm not poo-pooing talking about cool applications i really love doing that um it's just communicating questions is something that that's for my personal goal long term. Okay, but this is actually I think tied to this much bigger, much bigger issue, which is just like what is the public's philosophy of science, and how do each how does like each individual instance of science communication kind of contribute or shape that that philosophy? So like what I'm thinking of is like I was recently. I'm from Los Angeles, is recently having brunch in L.A., very fancy, with um, a bunch of people who work in um, in advertising. And, you know, they were explaining, um, they were, like, explaining ego depletion to me. They were like, you know, like, oh, when you, um, you know, when you have exerted a lot of effort, you know, making micro decisions all day, that is, like, you know, that you, you're sort of losing that capacity and, and then it's harder to make to do other things. Mm-hmm. And so they sort of started that and I was like, you know, actually that's been sort of debated. And then there's this jump to like, well, you know, like what science is, it's like one day chocolate's horrible for you, the next day it's like gonna save your life. And it's just <laughs> like, we don't actually know anything. And it's, and like that was, I don't know, that was sort of brutal to me. Like that kind of hurt. I just yeah. like sort of, um, it, just made me feel sort of like oh like you know there is uh, public mistrust and and confusion sorry about um, what science is and what it it can do and so it's sort of like when we're getting that wrong we actually have bigger problems like climate skepticism you know yeah right yeah this is like not trivial like this yeah i was just talking to one of the founders of the science literacy program about this about how when the science literacy program started it was just you know promote science literacy in the student body because that's what you want to do but now there's really like um you can't talk about that without talking about the political effect that has of like we need to build trust in science oh my gosh right (laughs) like really really badly We, we can't just think of them as know-it-alls who actually just get things wrong all the time 
Well, they're constantly flip-flopping. That's actually great that you guys bring that up, and I'm going to skip around on our, our script a little bit. Because, so, you bring up climate change, and you bring up the importance of public education and science because it has an effect on our entire world, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> in our global community and the Earth itself. And I was doing a little bit of digging about sort of, like, recent research in the science of science communication. And are either of you guys familiar with the deficit model of science communication? No. So this is kind of like, you've heard of it before, Teresa? A little bit. Take a guess at what you might so be getting at. So yeah. it's kind of something that when you hear it, you're like, oh, yeah, we all think that. We as scientists, when it comes to science communication and the public, we tend to feel like, you know, if the public were fully informed, if they were well informed and they had all the facts, most of them would come to conclusions that are in alignment with the scientific consensus. So if they had all the facts about climate change, they would agree that it's a problem and that it exists. Um, but there's been some recent studies, in particular, a Yale scientist, Dan Kahn, a, da- a Yale psychologist, Dan Kahn, in 2010, he did this study that kind of spawned a bunch of other studies showing that basically uh, people with better science backgrounds, people who had better education in science, actually were less likely to believe in climate change. And obviously, there's a lot of different reasons why we could go into that, why that might be the case. Maybe conservatives just, you know, don't go into the humanities <laughs> as much or something along those lines. But um, there ended up being a lot of research that came out of that saying that really, if you want to communicate science in a way that will sway public opinion, you actually have to focus more on the trust of scientists themselves, of yourself. And you have to do, um, you have to appeal to emotions and do a lot of framing of the topic from an emotional angle. And I'm curious, what do you guys think? Like, as scientists, is that something you're comfortable doing, trying to sort of control the interpretation of your results to sway public opinion? Or, you know, what do you think of this? I think that's necessary. I I think (laughs) if you just show someone a chart and don't tell them what it means at all, they're just going to be like, well, that's a bunch of lines and dots. Um, You you do, you don't want to be misleading, Mm -hmm. but what you do is you say, I have this hypothesis if this hypothesis it were true, it would be great or it would be disastrous for blank. Um, and then you say, I've got this data and it certainly supports my hypothesis or disproves it. I think if you think about the scientific method in a vacuum, it'll never do that. But sci- the scientific method in a vacuum isn't actually how science is done. People have form hypotheses for good reasons and probably because they're standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, right. and have read journal articles or something. So I think it is a, it is very important. Right. I want to do a quick plug for the Center for Translational Neuroscience here, um, CTN. Uh, brought in a speaker last year from the Frameworks Institute um, and talked a lot about this kind of exact issue of how to get a certain message across. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think one of the big takeaways from that talk for me was sort of the consideration of the audience as somebody who um, is not a blank slate at all, but as somebody who's coming in with a lot of um, prior knowledge and, and assumptions, some explicit and some not, um, about probably whatever you're going to try to, you might try to talk to them about or engage them about. Um, and so, let's see. So Wait, can I interrupt you? Yeah. That reminds me of something. I was just <laughs> reading about this. There's a trick in science communication or in communication in general where you first, and it's sneaky, it's you first trick your audience. You first <laughs> like have them form a belief 
and then you immediately, or or it's a pre-existing belief, and then you like destroy it. You like, <laughs> you make them doubt their pre-existing beliefs, mm-hmm. and then they're more open to new beliefs. But but you're right, they're not a blank s- slate. You you kind of have to do some banging first. And do you do that that destroying it? Do you do that just purely by refuting the facts with? improved accurate facts or you know refuting what they believe the facts to be or in this example it was someone talking trying to convince a bunch of doctors a a, a medical researcher trying to convince a bunch of doctors that i forget the specifics but that some form of treatment was better than the other and all Mm -hmm. the doctors were like no way that treatment's gonna be better we know best trust me and he first showed them the results but with like the columns switched to look like it was supporting their beliefs. Oh. And then, and this is kind of really, really sneaky, but this is an old <laughs> thing. This is probably like 60 years old at this point. Um, and I could be getting this all wrong. Um, <laughs> but then he switched, then he told them he switched the columns and the real data said that. Oh. And once they had had that like, oh, I'm right. Oh, wait, I'm just, I'm, yeah. So you're sort of convic- using the convincing them that this method is valid and that this data is showing them it, it could be used as support, and then you're flipping it, flipping it around on them. Yeah. <laughs> Which is very emo- – it's, it's an emotional approach, really, even more than a factual approach. I mean, it, it's, it's a dramatic approach. It's, a, yeah. it's got some showmanship. It's, it's got some serious showmanship. And it's – I guess this guy thought that, you know, the doctors are just full of themselves and won't trust someone else's study unless you mess with them a little bit wow. first. Interesting. That's interesting. I think um, another way of just like you mess with people, you can try to understand where they're coming from and engage mm. those prior beliefs. Also, I think one of the one cool thing from this framework talk was like um, that people hold contradictory beliefs, and one way to sort of sway influence is to just sort of bring like without even like challenging everyone, you know, getting real into into you know this is right and this is wrong. You can sort of. Uh, that there's a science to sort of like bringing out certain beliefs and sort of emphasizing those messages over time and getting people behind them. So, which brings in kind of a psychological angle, or is, is that seems like something that people from a psychology background would be a little bit more attuned to? Yeah, those side of things. Yeah, because I was just curious if either of you were going to be like, no, it's wrong to you know not you know the data are what they are. We just have to throw that out there, and then people make the interpretation of it what they will. But it seems like you guys are both comfortable with framing. Well, the maybe results. maybe this has to do with our philosophy backgrounds. There's mm-hmm. like some famous arguments in uh, like the philosophy of ethics, of just there is no observation without interpretation. You you can't actually have just raw data. That's just bare visual stimuli. Right. I mean, even right now, it's like, I'm observing your face, but I know this collection of shapes make up a face. Right. So there's already something going on that it's not just raw data. Right. Yeah. And yeah, interpretation is, I think, inevitable to some extent. And if it's if it's going to happen, I would like to have some level of, of control and say in what the message is. That said... I'm still thinking a lot about how to communicate uncertainty and how to say, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, if if I turn out to be wrong tomorrow, this is not because, you know, science is worthless, you know? Right. Yeah. Do, do you have any strategies that you use to sort of communicate that, to be persuasive while at the same time communicating that, well, it's not 100% certainty? Um, I don't know. I've been thinking about this a lot. I've been thinking about how to communicate the the broader, like, sort of picture of, like, theory building and science. And um, I, 
like this is my own bias, but like I feel like a lot of it just like societally, like I feel like that burden falls on science teachers and just sort of like in like making that uh, sort of part of science education from the get go. So right. that, that is already built into the audience. But I know that's that's a far that's not a single person goal. Well, that's, that's another thing I was wondering, like, do you have an opinion on at what stage in education you think the communication side of science should start being taught? You know, a lot, a lot of us, we don't really start learning this until grad school. And, you know, if you choose to not be engaged, you could even wait until year three or year four before you take a writing class or something like that. So what do you think? Do you think undergrad is too soon to start pushing communication of science to the general public? Because we all communicate to each other, but we don't communicate to a lay audience very often at all. Right. So I'm going to make a little plug for my high school and middle school, <laughs> um, high tech high and high tech middle media arts. Very incredible. I actually studied your high school in, really? in ed school. Yeah. That's, that's, awesome. that's that's pretty wild. Yeah, <laughs> I loved it. I, I really can't speak highly enough of it. Um, and one thing I really liked about it is we didn't have final exams. Um, we had presentations of learning. Mm -hmm. Uh, So from middle school, we were doing oral presentations of what every class we were in. That's awesome. Um, So my first middle school science class involved communicating science. We didn't call it science communication. It was just POLs. That's what you did. Right. But having that in there from the get-go was really valuable for me. I I think it really helped me a lot um, in graduate school, for sure. And I, I personally learn best by teaching. Um, I think it's actually true for a lot of people, but I think if you make communicating the ideas part of the learning process, you are going to have better success learning. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. Completely agreed. Did, did most of the students buy into that? Did they enjoy it? And uh, were they happy with it? I think they really liked the lack of paper tests. Uh, <laughs> we also didn't have textbooks. It was all projects. So. Very weird and interesting high school and middle school. I mean, obviously it worked since you've made it all the way to a PhD program in physics, so... True. (laughs) (laughs) Though I did have to teach myself how to learn from textbooks. Right. Uh, That had to happen at some point. I'm still not very good at it. Right. But the pros and cons. I'm probably a better science communicator for it, so I'll I'll take it. (laughs) Um, I've been huge about making science communication part of my classes, so uh, middle school and high school... um, uh, and in when I recently taught a class this summer, um, had a journalism-oriented projects. So I had uh, kids putting together um, newsletters. This was an environmental science unit um, on in environmental science issues as they related to their local community. Um, and so there is this idea of communicating, but also um, in this very local sense and very immediate issues. Um, and so that was a project that I was pretty excited about and 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 proud of. And I think. Um, I think hopefully got my kids to practice their science communication skills. Yeah. Well, and that's really exciting. I don't know, uh, like for me to hear, because that was not at all part of my education growing up. I think for a lot of people it wasn't. So it's really good to see if the tides are turning and this is being incorporated earlier and earlier. I think it can only be a good thing, you know? (laughs) And I gotta, I gotta say my college also did a pretty good job of incorporating you, you, there was like also oral thesis defenses for that as well. Right. So, so I've I've been supported at a lot of levels of education, awesome. and I'm lucky because I don't think that's normal. Right. Right. Do you guys have any science heroes or science communication heroes? 
anyone you look up to or have been as a role model or have you been a little bit alone on this road? <laughs> um, Stephanie Sassy is, uh, um, I don't know her official position. She heads the People Science and she's uh, fantastic. Um, so uh, organized and thoughtful and detail-oriented and passionate and just like a really, uh, really solid mentor. So she, um, we crossed paths um, when I was, when we were both in Boston um, and she had started the People Science, oh, sorry, so she started this project um, as a master's student um, trying to build sort of like neuroscience learning modules for teachers and educators. Um, and so she was building that up and then eventually at some point, I don't know the whole story, she connected with um, Jamil Zaki, who's a um, professor at Stanford, who was interested in science communication efforts and um, wanted to find somebody to take the reins so that he could probably be a professor uh, and spend more time doing that. <laughs> um, and so that kind of became this umbrella organization for a whole bunch of different efforts, um, including um, this um, platform for scientists to interpret or to write basically like pop summaries of their um, of their research in, in an effort to sort of make that accessible in spite of paywalls. Um, and so I've been really moved by um, her, um, I just sort of dedication to keeping, uh, she's kept one foot in research and, and really has this really diverse, interesting portfolio of um, science communication projects that reach a ton of different, sorry, I'm just like blabbing. About no, it. like, <laughs> really she's interesting. Just, like, she's just like, has done so many different, really interesting things and is really, really passionate about just making science, um, and it's just accessible and, and, and rigorous and fun and, and, um, and really thinking so, I don't know, she just has a lot of interesting things to, to say and build around, um, the sort of science and society like that that nexus yeah, yeah. that's awesome She's, yeah so yeah science communication here <laughs> there, I'm sorry. Go no ahead. go 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 yeah. i was just gonna ask if there were any sort of tricks of the trade you had learned from her or um something like that. um this is she taught me a lot about fonts <laughs> She's so like, like very design oriented. So Comic Sans all the time, right? Yeah. That's what you learned. That's the central, yeah. Comic Sans. The all central caps, thesis of science time. communication. Exactly. How to get a message across. No, but seriously, what fonts are good? Because um, we need to know. <laughs> <laughs> um, she. I'm a big fan of Babis New. Is okay. Free one that she uses for everything. Um, let's see. She has a really strong sense of mission that and a really thoughtful sort of theory about how whatever project she might be working on might sort of have this sort of uh, like multiplicative impact. And so I think it's it's very uh, thought out how different pieces fit together. Thinking along multiple channels at multiple once. Multiple channels, multiple time spans, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. So I, I've, I've been thinking and I've been trying to figure out who's my science communication hero and I've come to two sort of very different answers. Not anyone contemporary, but looking back sort of, and just to be a basic physicist, I'm going to say Richard Feynman. And, it's, and it wasn't so much communicating science to the general public, though he did do that a bit. It was more the dialogue about science as teaching. Um, his classes did not follow any scripts or syllabi. They were just someone asks a question and they talk about it. Yeah. And being able to do that for all levels of education, uh, under well, not all, undergraduate education and graduate education, 
Um, I think if there's something missing in the, you know, read textbook, memorize stuff method. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that that isn't really something present in, in the PhD program I'm in or anything. Right. It's just really pure the we're going to have a dialogue about science and that's what the classroom experience is like now i also had another answer which i think is probably a better one as far as a contemporary hero and she's a very local hero she's in fact probably a hero to many people in eugene as she was slug queen two years in a row hmm do you know who this is Oh, no, I'm just, I'm just a fan of the slug. I love the slug queen concept. Uh, yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You guys know about the slug we queen? We have no idea what slug queen is. <laughs> so, so the slug queen contest is Eugene's internal beauty contest. People of any gender can be a slug queen, but it is always a queen. And it is their job to bring rain, uh, but they also have to be a local person who gives back a ton to the community and really inspiring and awesome. And it's really, it is internal beauty contest. Why is it called slug queen? Because it has to do with the rain. And slugs come out for the rain. Yeah. I saw one this morning on the way to school. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, took a I actually never made that connection. I was like, okay, well, Eugene, we just like slugs for some reason. So the person I'm talking about is Brandy Todd. Okay. And she is amazing. She is the organizer and founder of this incredible summer camp, which I volunteered at, Spice. Oh, okay, Spice. Um, which does a lot of amazing camps. I volunteered at the pinball camp or the engineering camp helping eighth grade uh, girls build and program Arduino-based pinball machines. That's and awesome. it's just been wonderful. This is my second year doing it. And Brandy Todd's just amazing at science communication and incorporating informal science, like, like making a program for a summer camp that does informal science communication really, really well. And I've incorporated what I've learned from her into a bunch of outreach, uh, other similar informal science education outreach opportunities. I met Brandy. I did not know that she was a slug queen. Two years in a row. <laughs> Two years in a row. Yeah, she's she's pretty That's amazing. impressive. Because people in Eugene like to be very fair, so if she won two years in a row, she must have deserved it. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. She's just, oh my gosh, I don't know what's going to happen right. in the physics department when she graduates. <laughs> oh, she's, she's a student. She's a PhD student, not in physics, um, I think in science education. Okay. Uh, but she works also as the administrative person for the entire optics center That's for awesome. Oregon. So when she leaves. You guys are giving us great ideas of who we could have on here in the future. You so. should definitely. Yeah. Okay, that explains a lot. I was always very confused about why Spice and that science outreach stuff was operating out of the optics center. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's because she runs everything in the optics That's center. Incredible. That's awesome. Yeah. So, Saul, you have some achievements yourself. You actually were the winner of last year's three-minute three minute thesis competition. Is that what it's yeah, called? Yeah, yeah. Can you tell us what that is exactly? So, the three-minute thesis competition is a contest to describe your thesis in three minutes. Um, and it has to be compelling and jargon-free. Or if you're going to include jargon, you better say what it means and teach them something. It's supposed to be educational, too. It's really freaking hard. I can imagine. Teresa here saw me practice my first attempt at it, which was first I talked Northwest. And I learned a lot from that dramatic failure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, I was actually going to ask you, um, well, first I was going to ask you to 
give us your three-minute thesis. And then I kind of had questions about how it might have changed. So maybe this is a good Well, point. okay, maybe I, I let me let me preface sure. how it changed first. Okay. Um, my first attempt was at SciTalk Northwest. I was given funding from Ellie to go on the condition that I compete. Uh-huh. Uh, and I was like, okay, I don't really have a thesis, but I might as well try. <laughs> and I really tried to make it... Um, very philosophy motivated. Okay. And really, I really tried to do the thing of like, there's this connection between these two disparate phenomena and somehow they must be related, but no one's figured it out and I want to figure it out. Um, and I got really nice remarks on my presence and diction <laughs> and whatever, but I got really low. I was super interested in the philosophy angle. I appreciate it. I was really I appreciate it, Teresa. Yeah. I, 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 I was happy about it, but... um. I got feedback there, it just wasn't very compelling because the general, the the, the the waiter is sort of, you imagine you're like your yeah. waiter's bringing you your coffee and you've got three minutes to tell them what you do and why their taxpayers are funding your life. Which is hard <sighs> because as scientists, sometimes we're motivated by some very different things than the general public. So the thing that is so fascinating to us and compelling might be like, okay, I'm spending how much money on this to you? Right. <laughs> and, and that is a fair point. Um, so I got a lot of feedback that maybe I should focus on talking about the applications of my research. Okay. And then luckily, my area of focus in my research shifted slightly. Uh, it has since shifted greatly. Mm -hmm. um, but it shifted slightly enough that I was focusing more in my personal life on modeling these special types of beams called vortex beams. And my really good friend Alice is an experimentalist, and she's using these vortex beams to mix stuff. And I started talking to her about it and was like, I've got a good analogy for you. And like, oh, maybe I could just use this for a three-minute thesis competition. Do you mind if I, like, sort of borrow your thesis for the three minutes? <laughs> it's mostly Alice's thesis. Hang on. Hang on. So I, so one of the cool things about going to Science Talk Northwest and doing three-minute thesis is that it wasn't what I expected in terms of, like, just giving it oh, yeah. and getting a ton of immediate feedback that was just in front of, like, the rest of who was... It was very informal. It was very much about, like, improving your right. talk. And so that was really sweet. But I thought maybe I fabricated this memory. Like, I thought that I actually saw... Because we were in the same session. Mm -hmm. And, like, I saw you basically, like, get feedback. They were like, what's interesting about your work? No, like, really, what's... Like, how could you spin this? And I thought oh, that right. they came up with this, like, oh, you should make it like a, like yeah. a drink. Like a, yeah. No, that's right. That's right. That's like, right. That they actually helped you. Like, that was like a back and forth that you guys you guys got into. You are so right, Teresa. Thank <laughs> you for keeping me honest. That's right. I came up with the margarita analogy there. Okay. And, and, and then my research area shifted just very slightly away okay. from this connection between two phenomena and more onto modeling uh -huh. to where I could talk about this margarita thing. And it not be really irrelevant, yeah. but it's more like uh, the motivation for what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, I don't mean to cut. <laughs> no, no, you are so right. Like, you are right. Like no, the this. feedback they gave me there yeah. was what got it, because they really got yeah. me thinking about how can I make this uh, relatable. Well, I'm Which sure. Was super cool. Like I did not expect that it would be so interactive and just like approachable. Yeah. Like it wasn't intimi an intimidating process at all. No, it so was not intimidating. You contest. brought up your thesis in margaritas several times now, <laughs> okay. and I'm sure our listeners <laughs> okay. are probably going to okay. want to know what physics has to do with margaritas. So, so. I, I will give my three minute thesis okay. contest. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> I just, I first I have to do a little bit more prefacing, sure. which is so I was like, okay, I'm gonna enter University of Oregon's three minute thesis contest. Uh, I barely got my script finished in time and didn't have it memorized for the first round <laughs> and read it, uh, which you're not really allowed to do. And they like the judges debated for a long time, but 
they liked me enough and let me go through, which they probably should not have done. <laughs> and then I went on to win the University of Oregon's first place. That's and then awesome. the state of Oregon first place. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. That was crazy, but like just barely from the first <laughs> round. It was scraping by. That's how it's, I do it. Very inspirational for those of yeah. us still on the path. Um, and I bought Alice a bunch of drinks because this is <laughs> this is really her experiment. And I do I did some modeling to try to explain why it might work. Okay. So are you ready? Yeah, we're ready. Okay. <clears throat> I'd like to start off today by asking a simple question: How do you make a margarita? The answer is one part triple sec, two parts lime juice, three parts tequila, and then you mix it all up. And it's the mixing part of this that I'd like to focus on in this talk. Imagine you want to make a margarita half the size of a normal margarita, and then half the size of that, and so on and so on. After doing this about 70 times, you've got a margarita with only about a thousand atoms in it. And somewhere along the way to this, your normal size blender is going to stop being able to mix your drink. Now, lest you think I'm just rambling about miniature mixed drinks, there's actually a need in science to make margaritas this small. Microscopic mixtures of liquids and solids provide unique windows to a plethora of new phenomena. We can watch nanoparticles, only 20 atoms wide, diffuse in liquids. We can observe the yet unexplained flow of microfluids, which are droplets of everyday liquids that behave totally different at the nanoscale. We can even watch chemical reactions occur atom by atom to better understand new drugs to help fight cancer. But in order to study many of these chemical cocktails, we need a way to stir them. We can make these tiny margaritas, but there isn't a physical blender small enough in the entire world to mix them. So we have to get a little creative. Now, back in the 70s, researchers discovered that you can make beams of light that twisted around on themselves like a whirlpool made out of light. These are known as vortex beams. And the researchers found that when they shined these vortex beams onto stuff, the stuff started spinning around. Now, I bet I know what you're thinking that this sounds like the perfect way to mix those microscopic margaritas. The problem is that these margaritas are so small, you can't focus light to a small enough point to even see them, let alone stir them. Now, much more recently, my PhD advisor here at the University of Oregon, Ben McMorrin, discovered that you can make these same vortex beams out of electrons. Just like light, electrons act both as particles and a wave. But unlike light, electron beams can be focused all the way down to the diameter of an atom, making them the perfect candidate for an atomic blunder. By sending the electron through a special pattern, we can sculpt the electron wave into any desired shape. This pattern is called a hologram, and this art of sculpting electron waves is called electron holography. By taking one of the electron vortices produced from such a hologram and focusing it onto a combination of liquid and nanoparticles, we create movement in the fluid without ever touching it directly. And we can even use the electrons to bounce off the liquid to image it at the same time. We can mix our margarita and see it too. In this way, Electron vortex beams make it possible for us to mix our nanoscale margaritas and opening up a wide range of applications and are the first ever atomic blender. Thank you. Woo! That's great. That so um, That's really cool. It was a lot of fun. The three-minute yeah. thesis competition, awesome. I have to plug that too. That The graduate school does a great job putting that on. It's a great time. And that's here at the UO. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. And though Ben McMorn is no longer my PhD advisor, we're still very good friends, <laughs> and I do a lot of work with him. That's awesome. That is involved, so I haven't heard that version. So yes, it's ton. very different awesome. from the one I gave yeah. at Side Talk. Yeah. The margarita. Th that margarita analogy, though. It, it's, it's sweet. Yeah. It, was there an analogy you were using when you first, in your first three-minute three talk, or what? what uh, uh, I honestly would have to look at it. I think 
No. You I had, had some German. I had some German. I taught I taught the public uh, the word Zitterbewegung, which is a German word for trembling motion. And I had uh, pool noodles that my partner helped cut into spirals uh, to represent the vortex beams, and they liked that. So, so that, that was your slide? Because you get one slide behind you, right? So for Side Talk Northwest, you actually got a prop, not a oh, slide. okay, okay. And, <laughs> uh, sorry. And then for the one here, you weren't allowed any props, uh, just uh, a slide. A but slide. the like, judge made a joke of like, we'll allow Saul a prop. They're, they're, they get one because <laughs> they are one. <laughs> prop is my last name. Yeah. Well, if anyone's interested, I think because we get um when this podcast goes on uh, the Emerald uh, Daily's website, we get a little icon. So we're gonna put your slide up. So if anyone's interested, Great. they'll have a chance to go see what was playing behind you. Perfect. I was supposed to point at things, and the hologram is the thing with the the lines and the fork. You'll see it. It's <laughs> Do you, do you have plans to compete again uh, this upcoming year to defend your title? I've been thinking about it because it is a new project that I'm working on. Um, it would be a little harder to make it compelling, but the basic idea is we want to make the world's most sensitive cameras that can see color and also have an accurate time of when they took the picture. How good can we make those cameras? They see one photon at a time. This is relevant for quantum computing. You care about quantum computing for some reason. Uh, <laughs> so you're still trying to fill in the blanks. For yeah, I'm still trying to fill in the blanks, but I'm heavily considering it. Yeah, you should. You totally should. I definitely could use more money. So. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, so I wanted to ask about, so you, you use that really compelling metaphor of the, the margarita to kind of draw the audience in and then sort of like introduce you know, the more uh, technical terms and... and uh, and uh, topic, um, how do you sort of balance that, um, you know, that simplification or that hook with um, actually fully explaining things in a way that's not going to distort? Uh, yeah, was there the anything you science? left out that you kind of felt like, geez, I wish I could leave this in, but it's no, too complex? No, um, I didn't actually. Not with this talk. Um, the previous, the the talk that was about a different project, I did. I cut out a lot. And it felt like I was cutting things out. This I had to shorten to make it fit in the time. But I didn't... The, the reason I like this version... This, this project description so much is I did not feel like I'm dumbing it down. I really am trying... Well, Alice really is trying to mix tiny margaritas. Right. That's, that's, that's the project. Um, I'm, the only thing I maybe left out of this that I shouldn't is that I don't actually do this experiment. I work on right. modeling. Right. Uh, <laughs> but you know, when I tried to talk about like how cool it is to use parallel computing to solve these intractable problems, just, it's a little less exciting than margaritas. It's all about the framing. Yeah. The only thing that I, I, I dumbed down or left out was what I did. Okay, fair enough. But the project itself, no. I, I, I felt like I gave a honest... And you don't want to take analogies so far that they become inaccurate, but as long as they're helpful, I say use them. And just remember that they are analogies. Like, that's the real thing. Everything in science is about modeling and creating a model. The real thing is totally unknown. You just model it somehow. And as long as you're working within that framework and you don't go one further and say this is what actually happens, you're fine. And it's helpful. Um, 
I mean, I totally get why you chose that for a three-minute thesis. Like, that was fantastic. But I want to push on the idea of, like, there are just, you know, like, uh, like what you actually do is not compelling enough for a three-minute thesis. Like, I, I don't know. I think that, I think that, I maybe, I don't, I don't know how, let me think about if I fully support this statement. But I just feel like there is a way to explain like on some level pretty much most of what happens in science like it, there should be some way like you should be able to find a way i don't know no i totally yeah. agree with that um but what i got stuck on is this idea of communicating the unknown um when it comes to more computational work and you're trying to build some computer model for some interesting physical system cuz you're interested in what happens but you don't know what happens that's really it it's it, it's it's yeah it, it's hard it's not harder to describe it's just harder to make it compelling because the audience doesn't really want mystery <laughs> they want cool new facts i think uh, uh, they should want mystery damn it right <laughs> which seems to be like this tension between in order to be compelling we need them to trust us yet we're not really as much of an authority like you were saying Teresa with your friends who were like wow like chocolate is good for you this week and bad the next you know people feel disappointed in that yeah. but that's kind of the reality yeah like we're actually in the business of the uncertainty part like, right right that's, that's what, what we, we do <laughs> right no yeah. no it is it is a real goal for me yeah. to be able to talk about research that involves so much unknowns in a compelling way yeah. um but i i kind of realized i wasn't ready to do that and I needed to get good at just being compelling about cool stuff first. And then you can get maybe compelling about cool unknown. But that's my next goal. I'm, I'm really going to try to include that that's in the next time. Yeah. yeah, that's the next challenge. Yeah. So do you guys have um, any advice for Chris and I as we embark on our new uh, science communication adventure? Our podcast. Since we're, we're beginners and you guys are more advanced than us. Is there anything you might say? I think y'all are killing it. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I, I think so, too. You know, right. uh, right. speak uh, slowly and carry a big mic. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, I think it's about time for us to, to wrap up. Um, if any of our listeners are interested in how they can get involved in science communication in the future, uh, I want to let people know that we do have a Brain Awareness Week here at the University of Oregon, um, which is uh, March 12th through 18th this year, 2000, well, 2018, the coming spring. And that's pretty much a week where graduate students get to engage with the general public and um, children in school systems and teach them about neuroscience. And then there's also going to be this year's three-minute thesis competition, which is usually held in the Cedar and Spruce Room at the EMU at a to-be-announced date in May. Um, anything else you guys would like to... Plug Science Literacy Program, plug STEM Corps, plug SPICE. There's so many good... There's so many good mm -hmm. science outreach opportunities. If you're interested in communicating science, go out and do it first and then learn about it. Um and, well, okay, maybe learn about it first. <laughs> do both. Definitely do both. It's Get so much involved. fun. Both things are fun. Um, my final bit would maybe be, I feel like we've talked a lot about communication and sort of written and speech, and I think there's something to be said for, um, for how compelling art can be. Oh. Um, and sort of visual media. Certainly where audio, I don't know, just 
I, I think I've been thinking a lot more about sort of like multimedia, just creating different kinds of experiences for people um, and how that can be, I think, I think moving into some of the sort of like more emotional and, and um, sort of human aspects of how to get people engaged. Yeah. I think that's brilliant because if we're going to be able, I don't think maybe this is it. I don't think words are the best thing to evoke the emotion of awe and inspiration at the mystery. It's probably art is probably the thing I've seen do this best. We need to get more sensory. Yeah, we need to get more artists involved in science and science communication. I think that's br- brilliant, yeah, thank Teresa. You. Thank you. And that gives us a place to uh, to move in the future with our podcast as well, because I know there's some people working on collaborations like that here. So I'm excited to see where you guys take that. Yeah, yeah awesome. me, that's really cool. Thanks so yeah. much for yeah. having us. This yeah, has been so much coming. fun. This has been yeah. super fun. We really appreciate it. And um, welcome to Spotlight on Science. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, guys. <laughs> this has been really sweet. Thanks so much. This has been the first episode of Season 2 of Spotlight on Science with hosts Chris Chauvin and Max Drescher. This episode's guests were Saul Prop and Teresa Chang. Our theme music is Zombie Disco by Six Umbrellas. You can subscribe to the Emerald Podcast Network on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts, and you can stream them directly from our homepage at dailyemerald.com.